0: Hello there, and welcome to the Woman Being podcast. I'm Emma, and I'm here today with Kelly Ann. Kelly, and we're also here virtually with the lovely Megan Shantz, um, who is the host of the Faith and Feminism podcast. She's the author of an upcoming book called Woman Rising, and also just an all-around incredible human being. I've been following her for a while, so I'm really excited about it. We're all really excited about it, <laughs> um, and we're just gonna dive right in welcome to the woman being podcast community
1: where we explore thoughts and opinions and have the freedom to change
0: our minds without expectation or judgment
1: we will hold a safe space and support each other as we navigate together in the form of feminine
0: okay so first of all hello megan
2: (laughs) hi thanks so much for having me
0: of course, we're really excited that you're here. Even though it's um, non, what's the word? Non corporeal, <laughs> not physically here. It's um,
1: seriously such an honor. to yes. have you on here, we're stoked. Yes, and such we've a been privilege. stoked for a while. So, well,
2: thank you, thank you so much for having me. I know that when we talked before, I was running out the door, quite literally. I I mean, I remember you guys called me and I didn't have my pants on. (laughs) Because I forgot. (laughs) But I didn't forget today and I am ready, so.
0: Yeah, it was a bonding experience for all of us. (laughs) Absolutely. I mean, I've been listening to your podcast for years. Faith and Feminism is incredible. It's um, actually something that I know, at least for me, has been a big inspiration in us then going and launching our podcast. You have sort of a lot of different things that have led you to the point where you're at now where you have a book coming out and you have this following through your social media. And um, I guess first we want to start out with hearing a little bit about what inspired you to write your book, Woman Rising, and a little about your journey that that led up to that.
2: Yes. And so I warned the ladies before I began talking that I can rant. And so Buckle up. This is like, yeah, this is a question I get. I've been on several podcasts lately and you asked me this question and it is a long answer. So buckle up is all I have to say. Um, But it's a good story. I think think you'll relate with it a lot. Um, Okay. So it starts when I was born. Just kidding. It Um, it does start with being... (laughs) raised in the evangelical church the conservative evangelical church I was raised to believe that a woman's primary purpose was to serve her husband and I was not allowed to lead teach preach you know all of the things Um, my job was mainly to serve this future husband who may or may not exist Um, and so I, you know, kind of, that always felt wrong to me growing up, but I didn't have any other experience to push back against it, right? I had no other teaching that was godly. Um, and so I didn't know how to push back against it and I didn't really talk about it with anyone. I didn't feel safe to talk about it with anyone. I thought I was alone in feeling that these teachings were oppressive. I was also really into my faith and I said, you know, as a woman, really my only option to get close to God or to be, you know, holy in my profession or whatever, was really missionary or like pastor's wife. And I thought pastor's wife, first of all, I, had, I wasn't dating anyone, I mean, so that wasn't an option. And also it felt very stifling, the version of marriage I had been presented with felt very stifling and so I wasn't such a fan of going down that path. Um, And so I chose to be a missionary. So I went on um, a program called the World Race, which is an 11 country, 11 month mission trip. And I know that one of you all did that as well.
0: Yes, guilty. (laughs) (laughs) That was
2: Emma. Um, And so I did the World Race and right off the bat, month one Ireland, um, we had a contact that um, suggested that some of the girls wear head coverings to church. And because it was a suggestion, and we also had no idea what that meant, right? Because there's so many different types of head coverings. Like, is this just like, um, you know, some people have just like one little piece of cloth on their head, and some people have like the scarf, and we didn't really know what it meant. So we didn't wear head coverings, and he said it was an optional, so we didn't think it was a big deal. <sighs> um, I think only like two of us did. So that night, he was very, very upset. Um, that we hadn't wore head coverings and said that we were dishonoring to God and to our bodies and that we were only covered by God and Jesus if we had head coverings. And as we pushed back against this, he got more and more disparaging, saying uh, that God had an order and that women were basically at the bottom of this order. He made them almost seem like infants, like we couldn't take care of ourselves or make our own decisions. And he said a lot of things like, Women should be seen and not heard. Women's uh, worship should be inaudible while men's should be audible, and just a bunch of really terrible things towards women. And while this was not the first time I had heard something like that, um, it was, I think, the first time that I had enough understanding of those scriptures to kind of push back, at least in my spirit, against it. And so A group of five women about five women and i went outside to go cry and be upset by this uh this total misogyny that we were enduring and it was the first time i realized i wasn't alone and the power that comes from realizing that you're not alone and that we should talk about these things because not talking about it doesn't help the problem and so that night i felt like I was ready to be on like a journey to kind of push against these harmful things I've been taught about women. And this is the very beginning of of learning how to push back against this. And so um, the next couple of months, I went to Africa specifically, I was in Kenya. And I wanna talk a little bit about white saviorism here because it's hard to talk about missions without talking about some really problematic things that happen in missions. So, white saviorism, which I'm familiar, or I'm sure many familiar people are familiar with, is this kind of concept that white people, especially evangelical Christians, kind of look at themselves as a savior of um, other people, that they can fix other people's problems in a matter of time, and that comes with a lot of superiority and kind of thinking your way is better than their way. And so I was in Kenya and was given the opportunity that I probably shouldn't have had um, to speak to groups of students, like uh, anywhere from like 50 to 600 students about things like perseverance. And if we're talking about where I was in in Africa, specifically this village, women, girls had to fight to get their education. Um, and so we're talking about perseverance when these girls who've fought to get an education living in sub-Saharan Africa probably know a lot more about perseverance than I did. So I just wanted to point that out, like this kind of superiority that we come with, like I can teach you all about like these, you know, virtues without understanding or taking time to understand their culture or realize, oh, maybe they're the ones that should be talking to me about perseverance. But... I digress. I was there. I was unaware of white saviorism at the time. It wasn't, this was 2012. It wasn't something that I was at all familiar with in my context. And so I was giving talks, and I think I catered my talks around specifically girls because I was starting to, as reading a book called Half the Sky, I was starting to realize the oppression that girls and women endured and that I myself had endured. And so I was kind of tailoring my talks that way. And I had, I remember after one of my talks, a, a girl asked me, do they have female circumcision in America? And when she first asked me that question, it really took me back because I first had to, like, what is female circumcision? I know I know about this somewhere, uh, but I call it female genital mutilation. I learned about it in college from my women's studies class. And for those who aren't familiar with female genital mutilation, I'm gonna tell you right now, Um, this is going to be a graphic description, but it's also completely necessary to understand what female genital mutilation is. Um, It's when either the clitoris, which has obviously a ton of nerve endings, it's, you know, the sole pleasure, or not the sole, it is uh, where women get a lot of pleasure from sex. Its only purpose is pleasure. So it has a lot of nerve endings is cut off or the whole external genitalia. So the whole vulva can be removed. And they do this, to control women's sexuality, make sex painful. Um, And it's it's a tradition that they have a right of womanhood. um, And it comes with a ton of medical um, problems. And so, for example, a lot of these procedures are done without medical training, without anesthesia, without sanitary tools. So not only do girls risk bleeding to death during this procedure, but afterwards, there's often high chances of infection. It makes sex extremely painful, as you can imagine, taking the nerve endings, like not in a surgical way, off. Um, and then on top of that, if it's like the, the where the whole vulva is removed, it hits a lot of scar tissue, making the opening um, really small. So it makes urination a problem. And it also makes childbirth extremely dangerous because the baby will often get stuck because uh, it can no longer Get out. Um, and then that the baby can die inside the mom and that in turn can kill the mother. So there are a host of issues. Um, I'm not even getting into all of them. But if you want to Google it, just type in FGM and uh, the World Health Organization will tell you about that. Um, so when she told me this, I immediately thought of or asked me this question. I immediately thought of all of this. And I thought at first, because it kind of took me off guard, I was in still on a in a bunch of, you know, in the front of the room talking to a bunch of people. I didn't ask more questions, but I thought it was really odd that she asked me that question. And so I said, no, we don't have female circumcision, which is also not true. Um, I've later found out that United States, there are areas where um, it's still practiced. So that's something else that I didn't know. Um, But later on, I had more girls and ask me this question and, and I started to like put two and two together and wondering if this was happening to them. And so after one particular talk, I had a group of four girls like pull me to the side and we were talking and I asked, uh, or she asked me again about female circumcision. And I just decided to share what I knew of it and to go like into detail of like how it was harmful. Um, and I started to share that and then I just immediately saw shame call, come over them and I, I stopped talking I didn't know what to say. I didn't want to bring Shame on them if this had happened to them because clearly this wasn't their fault um, and That's when one of the girls said that they had all had been circumcised and that all of the women in this area had been circumcised and it sh- like it sh- I knew it was coming because it was a question that kept on getting asked, but at the same time I never thought it would be right in front of my face the way it was. And so I went home and I asked my contact, and I was like, can you tell me about this practice? Why is it still happening? And he told me that in this village that they take all girls between the ages, ages of 10 and 13 and uh, mutilate them. And sometimes girls be- bleed to death on their way home. And that he's tried to help young girls in the area who are trying to escape it by hiding them in their church. But it's a really hard and ancient tradition of the tribe. And it's hard to change because it's it's so um, yeah traditional and it's considered a rite of passage and this great thing that happens. And so um, I yeah, didn't know what to do with that, but I started to make connections that maybe what's happening is due uh, to some of the patriarchal. So like at at this time, I had already heard that a lot of these girls were struggling um, to go to school. I had heard that um, there's other like beatings that they had endured. One girl had shared with us that she was being beaten because uh, she did her homework instead of her chores. And and, um, there was another girl that one of the four that I shared earlier, she pulled me aside afterward and told me that, Uh, she was being raped by her uncle and um, I didn't I had no one had ever told me that they were being raped before and I didn't know how to handle it I wasn't equipped how to handle it I remember praying and telling her it wasn't her fault but I still like regret that moment I wish I had some training I wish I had known what to do but as as of like my now remembering I don't think I told anyone that this happened and so I was I feel like a lot of regret over that situation but at the same time it was helping me to understand the patriarchal culture that they were telling me about i started to wonder if this had something to do with the abuse and female genital mutilation that they were experiencing if these conservative gender roles that they were telling me about had to do with their oppression and so the next month I was in Tanzania and women were telling me that they were being beaten by the men in their village. And I felt like I hadn't done anything to help these women. The last month, which of course ne- wasn't necessarily my responsibility, but at the same time, I just, I kind of felt like, what am I doing here? Like if, if we can't offer help to women who are asking for help. Um, and so I dove into my white saviorism again and i was like i emailed the founder of our organization and i said hey what have what have racers done in the past when coming into contact with this type of injustice and he said why don't you start an organization megan (laughs) which of course hello i'm here for three weeks this is not a good idea but whatever i was encouraged to start an organization, and because I was reading Half the Sky, Half the Sky had talked about how microloans can sometimes lessen violence against women because it elevates their status by giving them some financial control, and uh, so I was like, okay, maybe <laughs> like maybe this will be helpful, and so he put me in charge of, or put me in touch with this microloan um, he was the head of a microloan organization in Africa, and he called out my white saviorism so hard. And I remember it being really painful. Like, I did not understand. I'm like, wait a second, I'm just doing what I have always been taught to do. I don't understand, like, what you're, I'm just trying to help, but he was very, I mean, He was very kind, but also very direct and saying, hey, these people, you're saying that they're uneducated. Their education looks way different than yours, but that doesn't mean they're not educated. Uh, Do you know how to farm? Do you know how to keep multiple children alive? Like, do you know how to do this? And of course, I didn't know those things. And to make the assumption that I knew better than them or that I could even fix a problem that's been in their village, uh, for goodness knows how long in the matter of like three weeks while I'm there because I'm white, of course not. And so he told me to kind of take a step back of like, listen, learn more. And if I was really invested and wanted to live in Tanzania, or, you know, then then that's something that we could talk about. But of course, I didn't want I It really made me evaluate my own. Uh, why do I want to help? And Um, Part of it was, yes, I wanted to help people, but I also think part of it was like, I wanted to feel good about myself. Um, And that's a whole nother thing we can talk about, but kind of this, the, the evangelical teaching I was taught is kind of like, I'm a piece of poo, and the only thing that makes me kind of okay is Jesus and my good works. And so, me trying to find worth in myself, missions work, a lot of it was, if I'm being completely honest with myself, was trying to find myself acceptable especially as a woman, I felt like I got so many messages that I was bad or that my body was shameful and that women are easily deceived and Eve is like the worst and I'm a descendant of Eve. So, um, you know, I think a lot of it was trying to prove myself worthy, but at the same time, my eyes were being completely open to this terrible patriarchal concept that was leading to the oppression of so much women. And so I kind of took a step back, at least internally within myself, for the next several months until I was confronted with one of the grossest injustices I've ever seen. I was working with a, a contact who, he started a daycare center um, in an area of India where women had been trafficked from Nepal. And so to kind of give a little bit of context of what was happening there, um, Nepal, is it's kind of a similar relationship, like, people from Nepal want to immigrate to India to have more opportunities. So if you think of maybe some Central American countries, Mexi- like perhaps Mexico to the United States, there's just n- not necessarily a better country, but maybe more economic opportunity. Um, and so these traffickers will go to impoverished villages in Nepal and say, hey, give us your kid. We'll get them you know, a job in India. And we'll send money back to you, and your kid will be much better off than like struggling without education on this, you know, when we're trying, we're struggling to feed ourselves. And so these parents trust these traffickers and send their children across for hopes for a better life for them and perhaps, you know, can lift their whole family out of poverty. And uh, sadly, these children are getting trafficked, and um, sometimes it's into brick kilns. And sometimes it's into the sex trade, specifically if they're girls or women. And so that was the women who were here, they were all Nepalese, all had been trafficked from uh, Nepal. And uh, so that was to just kind of give you a framework of what we were working for. And if you imagine, if you've seen Slumdog Millionaire, that was a very similar setting that we were in, but I'd say even worse. Um, And so in this setting, these ki- the women 's kids would have to hide under their bed if they were under a certain age, uh, you know if they couldn 't be wandering around the streets while their mother was being trafficked and so he our contact had one little boy tell him about how he was hiding underneath his mother 's bed while she was uh, getting raped and decided to start a daycare center so at least the children had somewhere to go during the day, um, when, or during the night when this was happening. And so um, I was a volunteer with this daycare center, and one of the first days I was there, this little girl walked into the room, she was around uh, five years old, and had you know, a tattered T-shirt that like hung over her legs, and uh, was clearly not being cared for, malnourished, and uh, kind of just immediately, was drawn to her and I asked her story and found out that she was being raised by the pimp who had sold her mother um, and that uh, her mother had been sold when she was six months old and was now being raised by a pimp who what does a pimp do but sell women and we don't know what was happening to her because she had a hearing impediment that she could hear if you like yelled but if you're like at a normal volume she had trouble hearing that and so on top of that something that could have been probably treated with hearing aids or something else she had no way to communicate with anyone and that was kind of like the breaking point for me that this that this was happening and again I saw themes of patriarchy the men who frequented this like just complete disdain for women, treating them like objects, discarding them. Uh, A lot of these women were dying from HIV uh, just because they were just treated as disposable and so were their children. And so it was that month, I'm still obviously working through white saviorism but also wanted to do something. And I asked, you know, can we kidnap her? Like I will seriously adopt her. And bring her to the united states and he said no like these pimps are violent they'll kill over their property i'm like can we go to the cops the cops are bought off i'm like well what can we do and he says you have to learn how to pray and love and listen for now and that has to be enough and that was so hard for me but it also really made me confront like what what honestly do i think i can do and and what if this is something that god's calling me to long term what does that look like and so i yeah i just loved her as best as I could for that month and I stayed in contact with him that is just like another illustration of sometimes like I thought I was best for her but what was best for her was her own people who cared like her own people who cared for her and her culture and um another time of just like trusting like locals they know what's best for their people and so um that was still the moment I think what I think was the breaking point of me for me deciding okay this is actually fighting the injustice against women and girls is what I wanna do. And so the founder of the organization invited me to start this program called Beauty for Ashes, which was an inner healing uh, retreat essentially. And uh, basically what was, it was like a two to three day to retreat where you give women the space to tell their stories And through those stories, finding like you're not alone, like when we find out we're not alone, it's really so powerful and there's such connection that and shame removal that can be found when you realize you're not alone and then entrusting that to a local woman to oversee it after we leave. And so I started, me and a small team, once I got back from the race started this program called Beauty Frashes. We started with women in the United States and then we went around the world um, again to do these inner healing retreats. And towards the end of that time, I was working with women who had come out of the sex trade in the Philippines and uh, living with them and just felt like, again, just seeing these themes of like patriarchy, but also like not fully connecting how we could fight it. And it wasn't, and so I continued working for the missions organization, would go back to the Philippines um, to lead trips, like one or two times a year. And it was right before I got married that I was leading a trip out there um, in 2017 and was talking to a woman and it was her first night in the bars. In this context, woman, are often trafficked because they have so few other options to provide for their families. And sometimes they think they're getting into the restaurant industry or the bar industry when it's really prostitution and they don't know what they're getting into. Some women do know what they're getting into, but for the most part, from the stories I've heard, they don't um, and end up getting trafficked that way. And so I was talking to a girl, she was 18 or so she told me, and it was her first night there. She had a young child Um, and she was with an abusive boyfriend and she had no other way to provide for her children. And uh, so as I was talking to her about this ministry that I was partnering with that would give the girls opportunity to get a full college education, these like six drunk men came up to us and tried to buy her and uh, she said no. Technically she should have the right to say no, but she said no and they didn't take no for an answer. I said no, we were both saying no. And they started to grab her, and so I didn't know what else to do, and I had a teammate run over, and they're like, why don't you just buy her first? Which is not something I ever saw myself doing, and so I worked with a waitress and pulled out a stash of team money to to make it so that she didn't have to go with these men for the night. And um, they still tried to take her, and so I ended up getting, me and a teammate ended up getting in kind of a row with these six drunk men and end up like succeeding and saying, oh no, like she's ours, which is people aren't property, but we were able to um, have that happen. And these men just got angrier and angrier and eventually just pulled a woman off the stage and left with her. And I remember that woman looking back at us with complete terror in her eyes. And I felt like I had made the situation infinitely worse while I was able to help, you know, in quotation marks, one woman, the other one, she was so easily replaced. And now instead of angry men, or sorry, drunk men, she had angry drunk men. And we know how violent angry drunk men can be. And so I was terrified for her. Um, And also because I had had a friend who was murdered by a client um, or a woman that I had worked with was murdered by a client. And I... Just collapsed on the street, thinking, "What am I even doing here? Am I helping anything? Is anything even getting better?" And uh, that next night, I remember asking God, "Like, what am I? Like, what am I doing? Like, why am I even here? How can we like actually make a difference?" Because it felt like we were just spinning our wheels. We were just treating symptoms, and things weren't actually getting better. And it was the next night that I was, uh, these American guys called us over and were like, Why are you here? And we asked him the same question. And he said, Well, I'm here because women here are raised right and they know how to respect men. And women in the United States don't know that. And so I come here to get the respect that I deserve. And I just remember thinking that he sounded like almost all of the pastors or or books that I had read about gender roles like hello like we even have a book like one of the most popular marriage books in the United States for evangelical Christians is love and respect and the book is basically a long book about how men deserve respect no matter what and it's an entitlement that they get. And it was just this moment of realization like, oh my goodness, like we're part of the problem. Like we are exporting the problem. We are and of course this idea of men needing respect and domination and all of this is not just in the church, but the church is one of the greatest upholders, um, at least in my experience, of these these gender roles of men deserving respect no matter what. And so I quit my job. <laughs> I I was like, I can't I I just don't think that this is where I'm meant to be. I think my job is to confront the patriarchy in the church because it's making us sick. All of these thousands of dollars that we donate from our churches don't mean a thing if we're supporting um, inequality and domination and patriarchy in our pews because this is honestly the same root. And I started to realize that the same root of oppression that was happening to these women was When I was sexually assaulted, that happened to me when my voice was silenced. like This is all about women's equality. And if the church has got, if we're gonna make a difference in the sex trade or anything, any kind of women's oppression, we really need to get serious about women's equality. And so having that understanding, that framework of meeting the demand, why is this happening, led me to quit my job and start a podcast called Faith and Feminism. And it also led me to lose a lot of friends and get canceled. And like, I know that like I was even gossiped at about at the missions organization I used to work at. Like someone told me is like, yeah, people are like talk about you and how you've like fallen away, (laughs) whatever. And so like, that's sad to me that women's equality is like, it suddenly makes me not a Christian or not your kind of Christian. So I've been pushed to the margins, but if any, like, if. Recent events, I mean, there was just a shooting where a white Christian man raised in the church killed women to eliminate temptation. I mean, like, hello, the church is sick. We are part of the problem. Ravi Zacharias, how many sexual assault can- scandals need to happen until we realize that the problem is in us? And then how we treat women and how we raise little boys to respect women and everyone says oh separate but equal separate but equal isn't a thing guys like i'm either equal to you and can function in the same space as you do or i'm not equal so i just obviously get a little fired up here because i have seen way too much of repression of women i've seen way too much in my own life to not care and to think that god doesn't care so that was a really long answer to your question, but I wrote a book about it. I go way more into detail there. I started a podcast. Um, but yeah, I hope that answers your question. It was a very long answer, I know.
1: <laughs> that was no, that was all like such incredible groundwork for mm-hmm. not only like your discovery of of kind of the systematic patriarchal oppression that exists worldwide, but how like the church has kind of Perpetuated that yeah. and and mm-hmm. and reinforced that yeah. to the point that people men feel that you know murder is acceptable in the yeah. eyes mm-hmm. of the Lord or you know and that's absolutely so relatable yeah in so many ways
3: yeah and I mean even even the concept of like I mean I completely resonate with what you're saying Megan like I remember gosh as like a seven or eight year old girl. Being raised in the church and being so frustrated and so confused um, that men could act like, let's be honest, total dicks, and that they are owed something that they don't have, that they didn't earn or that they didn't um, that they didn't give in return uh, to their women. And um, so, literally, the whole time you we were talking, I just had goosebumps and chills. And um, so, thank you so much for. Uh, sharing so much of your beautiful journey um, which actually makes me curious um, like what has it looked like for you to deconstruct your faith after the realization that women are second-class citizens because it feels like you kind of had a fast and heavy process
2: (laughs) yeah i mean so I, I mean in some ways it was a fast and heavy and because that one night but like i was slowly deconstructing before that um i think the moment where i really realized it is like i've already shared i'm a survivor of sexual assault i haven't been raped but i've been groped, and i've had uh, i've been trapped while a man has masturbated to me so like i i obviously have a heart for women who have been assaulted, not to mention all of the women's stories I've heard, like countless women's stories of women being assaulted and raped and beaten. And so in the 2016 election, I was very against Trump from the beginning, but very, very, very against Trump, especially after those comments came out, and about him grabbing women by the pussy. I mean, that was sexual assault and he was bragging about it and how the Christian church could be like, that's okay, we're gonna vote. At least he's not a woman. At least he's not Hillary Clinton. Like the misogyny was just so clear to me that you would rather vote for someone who's bragging about sexual assault than vote for a woman because you don't think she's equipped to lead. Of course, there's all these other reasons people give. right? But I think essentially, the mis- like, there was so much misogyny directed at Hillary Clinton and it was all summed up in apparently the emails. But the emails versus sexual assault, okay. But anyways, so that's when I knew. And I remember being very upset, like completely devastated when he was elected. And I was still working at this mission's organization. I was crying all day. And I talked to a, a man that I had looked up to. And he told me, Megan, this is God's will. And you'll see that one day. And. I I can't describe how devastating it was for me to hear that, to feel like you literally know that I, I talked to you after I was sexually assaulted and you're saying this to me, that this is God's will. I, I can't even explain how dismissed, they knew how much I cared about women, they knew my story and they said, no, this is right. And so that was the beginning of it. I started confronting some sexism I saw within the organization as well, and got some language changed, but I was villainized for it. Um, so it was, it was like like I said, it was slow. But like the, I think when I really jumped off the the cliff to, to say uh, to deconstruction was when Trump was elected, and then it was shortly afterwards where I was in the Philippines and made that full connection, and so. People ask me, actually, I get a lot of the times, like, how can you still call yourself a Christian? Mainly from people who follow me because of my justice work. And I said, because I don't think Jesus is anything like that. And I don't, I know, actually, I don't think I know Jesus is nothing like that. I don't, I've seen how Jesus interacts with women who have been oppressed in the Bible. He's not like, this is God's will. Go ahead and throw your stones. Like, go ahead and kill her. Like, this is God's will. Or, like, You know, the bleeding woman, that's God's will that you bleed like forever. I I just like this is not the way that Jesus interacts with women. And so I deconstructed so many things like I was raised in a context where I could only be Republican. And when I posted that I had voted for Hillary Clinton, I had uh, two separate people, friends, tell me that I was going to hell or they were my friends because I voted for a, a Democrat. And um, so this whole idea of even deconstructing, like why, why, how is our faith so tied to politics that I can't even have a differing idea of how we should function politically than you? And I was starting to even deconstruct. So I worked with women who had been trafficked in the United States and finding out, like listening to these stories, all of these women, not all of them, most of them have come from the foster care system, have come from families where Uh, You know, there's either addiction or like, you know, something else that caused them to go into the foster care system. And if we look at what leads families to go, children to go into foster care, it's a lack of support for families that are struggling. But here we are with the Republicans saying, we can't give money we you don't want to give our tax dollars to help struggling families, right? That's, that's handouts. That's welfare. And we they're lazy, and we don't want to help them. But here I am seeing the real-life evidence of women whose lives were change- would be completely different had someone helped their struggling family and, and the, the abuse that they went through. And so I read, I actually read a book called um, The Body Keeps Score, which I highly recommend. Such a good book. It's a really good book. It talks about trauma and how it's stored in our body. And if we look into women who are trafficked here in the United States, a lot of them have um, ACEs, which is Adverse Childhood Experiences. And the higher score you have for that, the more likely you are to be trafficked. So there's a direct correlation to the safety that a child is brought up in and whether or not they'll be trafficked here in the United States. It's a direct correlation. Yet so many people are unwilling to give tax dollars to help social workers and other people help struggling families that might be struggling with addiction or perhaps, you know, trauma. So we think of when we think of trauma of, say, a a war veteran, they have PTSD, we understand that their PTSD might cause them to harm their family, whether that's domestic violence, maybe struggling with alcoholism, so they can't pay for their kids. And so that's going to affect their kids lives, that's going to give them ACEs. So if we can understand that war veterans might be struggling with trauma, why can't we other understand that other people who have lived through trauma might be passing that trauma on to their children? Yet there are so little resources for families struggling with trauma. And there's other countries, there's studies done in other countries that, um, or actually was, there's was one study done specifically in Baltimore where they, helped women struggle they like identified women who might have trauma and they were single mothers and instead of like hey you're on your own they like sent workers to like help her for like the first five years um like daycare all these other things and it had a drastic impact like these these families were able to come out of poverty they had less like health care issues there's all these other things and so what that teaches me is that we really need to care about our own community of struggling people, but so often the church says, no, not my tax dollars. My tax dollars only go to military defense and like whatever. But I don't want to give money to welfare queens. Okay. So that was another deconstruction I had is like I was told that I couldn't be Christian and Democrat, yet this con this concept of only being Republican and not wanting to help social causes is leading to more people being trafficked and so that was another area I had of deconstruction and so it was a lot like it was a slow journey but like I said it was the election and then shortly thereafter that sent me over the edge and so for a while I felt really untethered especially because some of my deepest friends were telling me that I wasn't Christian I had one friend she was a very dear friend to me we had been friends since high school, tell me that she couldn't be associated with me because she couldn't be tied to the liberal agenda because I believed Dr. Ford. Um, I wrote a blog about believing Dr. Ford and she sent me an email on my birthday saying she couldn't be tied to the liberal agenda. And so I I haven't ever doubted Jesus's love or love for justice, the way he confronted unjust systems, the way he called Pharisees whitewashed tombs. Like, to me, Jesus is not the problem. The problem is religious people that don't care about other people, that don't love their neighbors as themselves. If we look at the Bible, Jesus himself is like, all of the laws and all the commandments can be summed up as love your neighbor as yourself and love God, okay, or love God as like, Love God comes first. Love God with all your soul, heart, soul, and mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. Those are the. He said that the law of all the prophets can be summed up in those two verses. And so, I think we're not even kind of close to loving our neighbor as ourselves when we are villainizing them for struggling or telling them that they're not worthy of any kind of tax dollars or support that the government might, might give them. And and even then, if we look at okay, so a lot of people make the argument. Well, it's our churches that are supposed to be helping. Go ask your church where their money is going, because I guarantee you ninety percent of it is going back into the community. I heard once someone describe churches as country clubs because it's just like kind of for their own congregants, and it's not actually uh, making a difference in their societies. It's not making it's not going to people who are struggling, which I think the Bible tells us to go to struggling. And so, for me, it's like, I, I have looked into my church's finances and I'm not happy with where those funds are going. Like, why am I giving, you know, 10% of my, my finances so that we can have like a bigger building with more air conditioning or like more smoke machines or whatever. And so I, like that, these are areas that I all started to deconstruct and don't hear me saying like, so many people hear this like, well, how you're not a Christian then because I, I critique some broken systems i think jesus would be critiquing. not true but anyway so i just believe and i can back up all day all of the scripture all the references if you want to hear me talk about how god empowers women um but i'll let you ask me that So to answer your question i have deconstructed so much of the fluff of christianity the idea that you have to be republican the idea that uh my tithe is going where it needs to go the idea like so many different ideas and really held on to the example that I see Jesus set. And so for me, absolutely, I'm a Christian. I follow his way all the way. Um, and I think the best way I can do that right now is by using my voice to call against the injustice of women. That is the, That I think is what I've been put on this planet to do. And I'm sure as heck gonna do that because my, my uh, submission is not to you and these other white guys in the church, it's to God. And so I'm gonna be submitted to what I believe is God's will in my life. And I'm gonna move fo- forward with that boldly. Mm-hmm.
1: yeah and it's so interesting too that what you mentioned about where church funds are going in comparison to you know the way that we tend to lean politically it's like if we actually were, were doing what we believe which is you know to help people feed the poor etc like those funds should you know be our, our money should be where our mouth is essentially and it's not it's yeah. really not and so p- both politically and like locally. We're, we're saying that we care about these things, but we're not actually putting that into practice. And I see, like, you mentioned the white saviorism that, you know, is kind of tied up into all of this. I think part of that is we're denying our own sickness. Mm-hmm. And and I've, I've been, you know, a perpetuator of this as well, where I'm kind of like, and I think the Ravi Zacharias thing, like, really flipped me upside down recently. But, like, we we say that sexual assault happens, but it's, o- it's only like, in rare, obtuse cases, you know, those aren't the real Christians. But I think the more and more that I have looked into this and learned about this and become educated with this. Like we, we are sick. And, and it's not in the rare, weird, obtuse cases. It's in the cases of the people that we thought we could trust. It's in, it's in your church, it's in my church, it's in everybody's church. Like, it's happening. And so this idea that, oh, these other weird countries are impoverished and they have all these bad things that they're doing, but you know, we don't have that here in America, and so we're going to come help you. But like that's totally false. We have tons and tons of our own rot underneath the whitewashing. So, um, yeah, all of those are super great points. And I think as I've dug more into this, it's hard not to or it's hard to like disconnect okay what is God (laughs) which it seems like you have very like clean lines of this is Jesus this is not but like it feels like okay God I thought that was you and it's clearly not and so how have you um how do you how did you separate that and um and how did you manage like your disappointment as you became disillusioned with with the faith that you grew up with
2: I want to kind of go back to what you said about um because what we hear so often right this is an individual that sinned this is an individual problem and that's another huge problem we have in the churches we're so individualistic so i mean i should say white evangelical church because i had a really incredible conversation with a woman uh she's an anti-racist educator and she talks about the concept of rulers church versus the people's church so there's always been a church that has been oppressive and has used the name of christ to oppress others and to gain power so like slavery hello how many christians the ku klux klan people have always been using scripture to protect their own power always i mean and if you think this this merging of church and state you know constantine and and then after that they had the papal um bulls the edicts that uh in Europe where if a land wasn't claimed for a Christian, if there wasn't a Christian ruler on that land, they could kill or convert anyone that was on that land to make it so it was Christian land. This was the early missions. So we need to understand that this is not a new phenomenon. This is a phenomenon that has been happening for a long time. But There's also always been a people's church, a faithful church, and oftentimes I think you're going to find that church on the margins. So if you look, for example, the Civil Rights Movement, the Abolitionist Movement, that was also a Christian movement. Like It was two Christian movements Christian you know I don't obviously think that the slavery movement was Christian but they claimed to be Christian they claimed morality Um, but it was also Christians that were abolitionists so there's always been the I think the rulers church and the people's church and those those forces have been fighting each other and if we even look recently you know for example uh the civil rights movement like we had the people's church and then the black church for the most part that was fighting for civil liberties and you know if we're even talking about women's rights specifically there was a movement for uh equality feminism in the 70s where with the equal rights amendment um which still hasn't passed it's 2021 it was first introduced in 1923 so it's been Uh, Almost 100 years (laughs) since women have not been included for equal rights in our our Constitution, which is bananas to me. But, for example, the Equal Rights Amendment that was tried to pass again in the 1970s, it nearly passed until a woman from the conservative evangelical church, Phyllis Schlafly, campaigned and said women belong in the home and like baked pies for people and made it so it hasn't passed. And so like, again, we're going to see these two different ideas. And a lot of times the church has been a place of oppression. And I think we really need to understand that because I think people who are completely deconstructing their faith, and I understand given the current climate, why you want nothing to do with Christianity. a hundred percent empathize and understand. But I think that's because they've been grown up in a context of white evangelical Christianity and have never learned about the people's church. They didn't know about the civil rights churches. They didn't know about leaders who still proclaim their faith and maintain belief in jesus christ and that drove them towards justice and so i think what people are walking away from is the church that they should be walking away from and that's the rulers church and i think for me that is what saved my faith is understanding that jesus is a liberator my goodness like look at how he confronted unjust systems again and again and again and he confronted like greed and supremacy and religion you know religiosity and brought people in from the margins and so sometimes when i look at these these churches i'm like do you know who jesus is honestly like honestly have you read the scriptures have you read how he confronted unjust systems and the Pharisees and told and brought people in from the margins and said the last shall be first and said if you're not like you know we have the parable of the goats and the sheep right and he says the goats are the people that didn't visit the sick in prison that didn't feed the hungry that didn't clothe the naked and he's like oh Jesus Jesus when did we do that for you we never did that and he's like whatever you've done for the least of these you've done for me hello are we doing this my goodness we're not you know and so I recently went to um The civil rights museum here in atlanta and i was just so moved by the faith of these civil rights leaders honestly and if you look it's interesting so obviously martin luther king was assassinated but his one of his last sermons was almost like he was eulogizing his own like maybe he knew it was going to happen i don't know where he was eulogizing himself it seemed like and he said At the end of my life, I want to say that I was a Christian who like did my very best to clothe the naked, to feed the hungry, to visit those in prison. And I don't even think that's even a facet of a lot of our churches, because if we look about where our money is going, it's not going there. We're not visiting the sick in prison, or like we're not going to prisons, we're not, you know, some of us are, some of those churches are, but if we're looking at like proportionally, where are those finances going? it's usually going to us to make us feel like we're we're moral and good and feel good about ourselves without actually doing what I think Jesus calls us to do. And some of my favorite passages are Isaiah. So like this is, I read the Bible and when I read it, not through a white man's lens that's been used in a harmful way. So for example, like womanist, there's a really great book called uh, woman is midrash by Dr. Will Gaffney and has I've just heard completely about it on your head. podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's really it just completely takes these bible stories and shows it from a perspective of um you know if we're talking about intersectional intersectionality a black woman is one of the most oppressed, if not if not the most oppressed, person here in the United States today. So to, to understand how the Bible comes across to her, I think is so essential. But we've been reading it from the top, the, the white male's perspective. And I don't think the Bible was for, I don't think Christianity is for the top ruler. I mean, that's actually who Jesus came to stand against. And so, like, I, I, I just I think it's so important that we read the Bible, even through voices on the margins. And so reading people like Dr. Will Gaffney, womanist uh, tradition, reading. Um, I just had one of my listeners or not my listeners, Rose J. Percy, who I spoke about earlier, who talks about this concept of ruler's church versus people's church. She introduced me to James Baldwin. And so I just finished um the fire next time by him, like listening to an audio book and guys, you have to pause because the way the gospel is presented to the is, is completely different. And so for me, I have found solace. I have found my faith in the people's church for a long time. That wasn't what was presented to me. And I, and I have to say, even in the context of the ruler's church, that's what inter, inter, uh, me to Jesus. So I'm not going to say it's all evil. It's all bad. I'm just saying there's a lot of sickness there. And um, that we need to really reevaluate what our priorities are. But for me, I think one of the most powerful things has been reading about the the faith of the civil rights leaders and reading about abolitionists and how, um, what their faith actually looked like to them. Uh, because it it's not <laughs> it's not like a book like Love and Respect at all. It's nothing like that. And so, um, screw that yeah, book. That, I hope that answers your question.
0: Yeah, I've been wanting to read the, like, womanist midrash, is that what it's called? Um, Ever since you uh, talked about it on the podcast, like, it's uh, fascinating to think about. uh, Obviously, there's so many ways that the Bible comes from a white evangelical American Mm -hmm. male viewpoint Mm -hmm. that, like, are totally different from the way that it was originally written, are totally Mm -hmm. different from the way that people who come from totally different life life circumstances are going to read the Bible. Um, And we have to take that into consideration. And also in the fact that, like, the people who are oppressed and the people who are marginalized are probably reading the Bible in a more accurate way to the way that Mm -hmm. the Bible was originally written Mm -hmm. because those people were also oppressed and marginalized, you
3: know? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I think, and more and more in... Our generation, I f- specifically, I feel like people aren't satisfied anymore with um, our limited perspective. It mm-hmm. feels like people are pushing past what we've been taught and what we've been raised with. And frankly, what the church has been perpetuating
1: for a long time. But mm-hmm. I, I, w- think, I think the hardest part for me, though, is like these are... Well-intentioned. And I know because I, you know, have come from this background, like, yeah. nothing but w- good intentions. Yes. And nothing but, Megan, you mentioned, like, doing their best to be enough, mm-hmm. like, in yes. the faith and, like, to to save enough people to, you know, receive yes. the the favor of God, you know? And I think... Like, as a woman, as I've experienced hurt in these areas and, like, seen other women treated with disrespect and, like, like objects, um, I think the hardest part for me is separating, like, your good intention from, like, this this evil concept that has, mm-hmm. like, poisoned us. Yeah.
3: And I think that's the biggest thing that I mean I have so much love for the church and the Christian community I was raised in like I have deep love for my roots and where I've come from but it's also very heartbreaking to be like we are we are sick and Mm -hmm. everyone's saying no we're not and I'm like no yeah like take a look and dig in And I think that is very threatening to the older
1: generation. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so... It's not us. It's those crazy liberals who are, (laughs) you know, threatening to ruin our society. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. I mean, honestly, I personally, and this is sort of something that I've been processing lately some, is I have a hard time believing people actually do have good intentions with Mm. stuff like that. Like, I... Especially when you look at cases... One that is obviously very prevalent at the moment uh, is the Ravi Zacharias scandal. And it's like, okay, like he was this prominent leader. He, um, like, spoke at so many conferences. In fact, my church that I used to attend in Philadelphia hosted him multiple times to. Um, have him do these big uh, sort of forums at the college campuses there and um, talk to people about God. And it's hard for me to to look at that and look at sort of the amount of power that he had mm. and believe that all of his intentions were good because, he, because absolute power corrupts absolutely, right? So, like, if somebody is put into a position of so much power and, like... Um, so much admiration then like it's so much easier for them to abuse that power especially when we already have corrupt power dynamics between men and women in the church Mm -hmm. and so it's like okay sure like these people can do amazing things or that seem amazing for god but at the same time like i don't know their hearts and i don't know them and when things come out It's sometimes hard for me to be shocked because I'm like, well, everybody is corrupt and everybody sometimes I'm just like, everybody just sucks and and people are like terrible sometimes. And so a lot of the time. And so it's, that's hard for me sometimes is to, to actually believe that people have good intentions when they're doing things that are bad and harmful, Yeah, you know,
2: it's hard for me to believe, like, I, I kind of find myself in like feeling, understanding both of those perspectives. Uh, Number one, it's hard to believe, especially that people have good intentions when those when you have been called out and you deny like that's that for me is like I'm having trouble believing that you have what's best in mind when I'm telling you you are hurting me. Like, really, is that your best intentions? Because but I think it's also there is compassion there because I think the Jesus that I was taught was kind of like. You didn't necessarily need self-awareness because Jesus covered all my sins. I don't need to, co- like, I can just, because I prayed the prayer or whatever, and and because I say I'm a Christian, then it doesn't really matter because I'm covered in the blood of Jesus. Like, we even see this idea with, like, which has been terrible to watch so many churches refusing to wear masks and care for it. just like the minimum inconvenience. It's just an inconvenience of wearing a mask and saying, well, I'm covered in the blood of Jesus. I, it, like, how is that not more clear that you think the blood of Jesus covers you from caring for your neighbor? And that I think is really problematic because if we look again, what are Jesus's teaching? Love your neighbor as yourself. But they think because I'm covered in the blood of Jesus, I don't actually have to do that because God's gonna forgive me. And so, I mean, I'm trying to, like, I've had so many interactions with people uh, that range from people who are trying to understand my perspective to some people, like, treating me like I'm the spawn of Satan, like, out to lead people to hell. Um, So I've had all of the range of interactions, but I think what I'm finding most frustrating is the people who refuse to listen to the voices of people who are marginalized. And I think if we could just pause and listen, and maybe even evaluate our own complicity i mean if you look at the the whole book of isaiah it talks again and again it's like god like people are like having their festivals for god and bringing them their altars or worshiping god and god's like i don't even hear you like go wash your hands of the blood of them and then i'll hear your prayers and i think if we read Isaiah, I think we've fallen into the same trap that people have always fallen into. I'm going to focus on my love for God, sing my worship songs, think I'm good. But God says, I don't even want your worship. I don't even want your prayers until you wash the blood from your hands. And there's, and the only way we can wash the blood from our hands is if we see it and understand that while I individually am not trying to hurt you because... I did not understand before. But now that I listen to you, I understand that the system that I'm supporting is harmful. And so I think we have a problem that we, we're so individualized. We individualize sin. And uh it, it's, it's actually system, it's a lot more systemic than that. Um because if the church was functioning how it should be, we should be able to uh see that this is actually a system that's within us. This is not individuals, this is we are raising little boys to think they're better than girls like that's just the plain simple truth of the matter is we are raising little boys to think they are more equipped to lead uh, that women are more easily deceived that women are a stumbling block what if these lessons communicate like as a little girl of course i thought i was less but what is that community getting to boys and why are we surprised when boys do treat women like they're less we shouldn't be surprised. This is this is something you've been teaching them as holy. So I like I have compassion because I absolutely came from this, absolutely was steeped in deep hardcore evangelical. Like I went to the conferences, I did all of the missions, I hurt people because I thought I was doing the right thing. But the difference is is I was able to listen to the people that I hurt. And for me, that's where I get really frustrated. It's like, I understand if you didn't know better, but I am telling you right now that this is hurtful. And the people who still say, no, you're not actually hurt, you're faking it. That's what is the hardest for me is to, and I actually have had people tell me, Megan, your experience doesn't matter, only the Bible matters. (laughs) And I'm like, I don't even know how to respond to that because like you're not even seeing the Mago day in me in my experience because it, in your opinion, it doesn't match up with your translation of the Bible. But um, yeah, so that's like, I, I understand both perspectives and I absolutely do have compassion for people if they're willing to at least have a conversation and listen um, and I do have compassion for people that aren't but I think it's they lack a lot of self-awareness and just try to cover themselves in the blood of Jesus. Instead of confronting the blood on their hands, yeah, yeah, I
1: yeah. think I think for me and what I was, you know, trying to get at too is I think it almost hurts more when it comes out of ignorance, you know, the kind ignorance of you know the white evangelical Christian um, than it, you know, than it does from angry, you know, bachelor Instagram account who's trying to tell us that you know our natural place is in the kitchen or whatever, you know, cuz it's almost like conceptually easier to separate someone who's very clearly animastic towards me than it is someone who thinks that they have what's best in mind. Mm-hmm. And so it's like the it, it's more painful to feel mm-hmm. like it's coming from that, you know, family member or a friend or someone who's supposed to be like part of a community, but mm-hmm. yeah. So we have
3: um, throughout this podcast and throughout um, this specific episode kind of flirted and talked a lot about this hot topic word right now in the church called deconstruction, which (laughs) is a very interesting thing. It's a very beautiful thing. It's something that is right now. It feels like there's created a pretty big divide between this generation and the older generation. So my question is. Why do you think longstanding Christian cultures resist deconstruction and discourage doubt and exploration of the faith? Miss Megan. <laughs>
2: <laughs> my goodness. I mean, I'm not going to claim to understand a generation that's not my own. Um, I have I have guesses from my interactions. Um. So I'm finding that in addition to resistance to deconstruction, there's also a resistance to kind of like therapy and counseling. Psychology is very bad. Yes. And so for me, I think it's a lot about, again, this whole concept of like Jesus fixes everything without realizing that, we are the agents for change, right? So um, I think a lot of people like, when I think of certain members of my family, it's like, well, I'm covered in the blood of Jesus, which I already talked about, but they're not actually aware of their impact on the world or perhaps even on others. And so of the people I'm thinking of right now, uh, not even self-aware to realize when they dominate a conversation, when they interrupt others, how they maybe even treat their waiter in a in a way that's not uh, respectful. <laughs> um, so I had like so I'm gonna I can only speak from my own experience, but I think there's a lack of self awareness. I think there's uh, a lot of shoving down of questions because that's what they've been taught, right? So we were obviously raised in a way that, or at least I was raised in a way that doubt was bad. And I couldn't even really talk about any doubt that I have. But I think when you shove that down long enough, you you shove down so many indications that your body body's telling you, like something's off, your intuition, whatever. Because we've also been taught, right, like the body is sinful, our emotions are sinful, the heart is deceitful, above all things. When I believe the body is a gift from God, that we should pay attention to its cues if we don't feel safe, if something in our body feels wrong. I think that's something that we need to pay attention to. But if we spent our whole lives shoving down those cues because they're unimportant, my emotions don't matter, right? My, my emotions are unimportant. I'm just going to bypass them all and focus on Jesus. I think that's negating the fact that God put us in a human body with emotions for a reason. Those are tools to help us navigate and understand the world. And so I think when you continue to bypass these cues, you You lose touch with not only yourself and your, you know, and being able to really investigate your doubt, you also lose touch with how you affect others. And so I like I can only think of so many conversations I've had where the person I'm communicating with is just not really able to pick up on. The cues that they're they're experiencing themselves, they're not understanding why a certain conversation might get really get them really upset. Like for example, I'm sure you guys have had conversations where you maybe see some someone from the older generation getting really upset, like something upset them or triggered them, and but they're not even able to communicate necessarily what it is, um, or that. Uh, to, to understand, yeah, to even just, I think, see themselves in a way and how am I impacting others? This is what I'm feeling, but I don't even know what it is. So I'm just going to kind of, <laughs> I don't even know how have, have a word for it. But I like kind of, uh, I don't want to use the word explode, because I think that's too strong, but kind of, yeah, just not not really being aware of their own emotions, or maybe how that might impact others. And I, And again, this is, I don't want to say this for an entire generation, because this is my limited experience, right? I don't have all of the experience, but I think it's this idea like, I need to push down my doubts. I need to push down my sadness. I need to push down my anger, any of these emotions that they have been told are bad. And they're just trying to push through and focus on Jesus. And then I think, I mean, there's a term for that. It's called spiritual bypassing. And I think until we can get in touch with our emotions and our doubts and our feelings, we're always gonna be resistant or afraid or hesitant for someone else who's going through that journey because that has been told that's so dangerous for me that I've pushed it down my whole life. You can't, that's really dangerous for you and I don't want that for you. And so I think it's almost like a form of love. I don't want you to go down the slippery slope. I don't want you to like fall away. But I also think there's a huge area of disconnection without wanting to dig dig into why they think the way they think or why this this particular thing made me feel so strongly or could I be wrong about this? I know this is something I've been taught for, you know, my 60 plus years on earth, but maybe I was taught wrong. And I think in addition to that, we have grown up with a privilege of having access to the internet and having access to other information. And so I think there's also a whole component of media literacy that a lot of people of the older generation might lack because they, ha- they didn't grow up with the internet. They can't, like, I have seen family members of that generation share the most clearly fake things. Like this is so clearly like fake, but because you weren't trained with media literacy which which is a teaching that I've done like on my Instagram because I think it's so important. Um, there's there's a whole sites about it like I think medialiteracy.org is one of them. Don't quote me on that, but um, asking questions: Who created this? Why did they create it? Who, what do you think their impact is? Who who like who sourced it? What information do they have as their resources? And so I think specifically that generation might get in a bubble and see something that they think is true because it agrees with their worldview without asking more questions for example my mother-in-law once shared something which i just couldn't believe that she thought this was real and like worthy to share but it was several years ago but there was a a sandstorm somewhere in uh Uh, the Middle East. I don't remember exactly where. It wasn't actually that big of a deal because no one died. I mean, I'm sure it affected crops and stuff, but it wasn't like something that made national news or international news, I should say. Um, But she shared this thing and she said there was an earthquake in this area that caused a sandstorm that killed like Two million Muslims, because God was showing His wrath. So, like for me, that showed me your understanding of God is someone that's wrathful and will kill a bunch of Muslims, genocide essentially, um, because that's your view of God. And it hasn't been pushed back. It hasn't been questioned. And you're seeing this as almost a good thing. Like the question is, why? Why do you think it's a good thing that God would kill two million people? Honestly, honestly, how is that a good thing? And so. I think there's just a lack of, in that case, I think she had low media re- literacy to see like, like literally I could Google this in two seconds and find out that it was fake. But even the images, like, I think it was like the, a sand cloud with like someone like, uh, like put a, like a face in it, like, like probably from the mummy or something. I don't know. It might have been a clip from a mummy. I don't even know. But it was just like very clearly like sand doesn't have faces in it. And this isn't real. And I can't even believe you think that God would kill two million Muslims because they're Muslim. Like that's genocide. Do we not understand that's genocide and not a good thing? Like what was the whole, like anyways. And so I think there's some of that. And again, if there are people of that generation listening, I'm not saying you're all like that, but that's just one example that I experienced. I think there's like, we need to ask and dig into these questions more. And because our generation, I think, has more media literacy, when we're told certain things, we're like, okay, hi, Google, is this true? And we're able to disprove it a lot quicker. And it's not something that gets embedded in our psyche. And we're also not surrounded by people that also believe this stuff. So here's an example. One time, this is embarrassing to admit, one time I believed that dogs could see their own farts because my dog looked at its butt when it farted. And then someone sent me an article that they can see that. And I just believed it because it matched my own experience of my dog looking at its butt when it <laughs> farted. And now there's an article, and I'm like this has to be true. But luckily, because my friends have media literacy and I shared that information with them, they're like, no, Megan, like that's not true. Like dogs can't see farts. And so, That's just like a small example of like, but if you think about their generation, everyone around them might be believing this material. No one is questioning it. No one has the media literacy to say who made this? Why did they make this? What are they trying to do? Like, these are all really important questions that we need to ask when we see that. So I think our generation has been lucky enough to have media literacy and if we for some reason have our media literacy slip through the cracks which i think we all do we have a friend that says no like that's silly that's not actually happening there's a lot more reality checks because of our generation having more uh that and i think we're also include like we're a lot of our generation is going to therapy and so we're encouraging one another to go to therapy and i think therapy has been one of the strongest breakthroughs for me Um, and realizing these really harmful teachings that I actually absorbed from the church and unlearning them. Um, But that doesn't mean I give up on Christ. And so I think sometimes people think deconstruction and sometimes that leads to walking away from your faith. But I don't think that should scare people as much as it does. um, Because I I mean, I think when you're giving a context that's not concerned actually about the teaching of Jesus, then maybe you should walk away from that. And, and maybe what they're doing is actually following Jesus into the wilderness. Like we talk about Jesus going into the wilderness. Maybe we're just following Jesus outside the structure that has been set up. And so, yeah, I think that's to, to answer the question. And, I, and there's a, one more point I think um, that I'm going to hit is that I think a lot of the people have been taught to read the Bible as a prescription, as a rule book when I actually think it's a descriptive of the time that we were in. So for example, if we see, we see patriarchy across the Bible, right? We see Solomon with a bunch of wives. We see, and no one talks about this, but Abraham giving his wife as a sex slave to Pharaoh. We don't talk about this, but this happens in the Bible no one's gonna say, that's a that's how it should be. Like prescriptive, if we're reading the whole Bible through a prescriptive lens, then everything in the Bible is how things should be. Like Job losing his whole family and his cows and whatever, like women being raped. Of course, this is not prescriptive, but so often I think people are trying to say the Bible is a rule book. It's not a rule book, it's a story of people trying to find God and it's in a certain place, in a certain setting. And it's about descriptions. It's descriptions of people trying to find God, and that's not to say it's not prescriptive because I think it's very clear when it is. We have Jesus when he when he's giving instructions, that is pres- that is prescriptive. But he's being very clear about when he's giving instructions, like just like for example, and and I think mm-hmm. there's even times where there's prescriptions that perhaps. Paul will give to certain people but that's for a certain time and certain place because these letters we have to remember these are letters to certain churches and to to emphasize this in one of Paul's letters he says bring me my cloak does that mean we all need to go around the house looking for Paul's cloak to bring it to church of course not of course not but we're reading as like a rule book and we have to understand this is to certain people at a certain time and we have to understand if we can't bring Paul his cloak because he's dead and God knows where his cloak is, it probably doesn't exist anymore. Then we have to understand that these are letters to certain people at certain times. There's a lot of description. There's a lot of prescription, especially if we're looking at the words of Jesus. Absolutely. I think if we're finding any prescription of how things should be, then we really need to look at the words of Jesus. But we also have to understand that much of the Bible is description.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah. Mm-hmm. yep, absolutely.
1: Yeah, I mean, we hear all sorts of very obtuse, strange justifications um, that use the Bible as a weapon of all sorts of oppression and mm-hmm. you know justification for sin, and it's unfortunate. And one of those things that um, recently came up that you brought up earlier is this concept of someone going out and murdering Asian women um, in Atlanta— because he needed to remove temptation from his life, and I think we're seeing—not that we're seeing it more and more, but that we're actually like talking about it more and more, and we're not letting it stay, you know,
3: hidden—is
1: mm-hmm. this sort of like overwhelming number of assaults against women in our country around the world. Um, but we're starting to see a pattern, uh, specifically in this case, like it's very night and day, that there's a pattern between purity culture and and just like straight up assaults. And I wondered if you could elaborate on that for us.
2: Oh, yeah, I of course I can. Um, so purity culture, for those who are not familiar, um, I know some people aren't quite familiar with that term. Some people don't like that I use the word to describe this, but I don't have other words for this. Um, So when I was growing up in church, purity culture, my purity was emphasized above all else and it was a facet of me being a good wife. If, if, If I was ever to be valuable, I would be a good wife and I would remain pure for my husband. The way that was taught was that I could never do anything sexual. So the analogy I was given is like a flower with petals and each time you did something sexual, say you got kissed or you kissed someone, you'd lose a petal. Um, say you, you know, did the, maybe you did some dry humping with your boyfriend, you lost another petal. Uh, maybe you did, you know, goodness knows. There's a lot of sexual acts that were, I think, prohibited, um, at least in my context. And soon enough, you would be a bald flower, and no one would want you anymore. And. Um, that was the teaching i was given not only i was literally likened to an object and that's not the only ones that are out there there's the spitting cup uh you know you have to be you know each time you do something sexual it's like someone spit in you and like no one wants to drink you or the licked oreo or the licked sucker the licked pop top there's literally so many out there of likening little girls to objects which is hi like let's not liken human beings to objects that's not helpful and that's literally objectifying them and so i think it's interesting because i think purity culture attempted to stop the objectification of women by objectifying little girls and the way they did this is likening them to objects telling them that their body was shameful and needed to be covered up at all times so for me in my particular context on my first mission trip i was 13 I wore like the same crew neck T-shirt like nearly every day because I was awkward and it was like the only shirt that like I felt like I looked good in, and uh, it was a T-shirt. Except when I raised my hands, like I guess a small sliver of my stomach would show. Never was that intentional. Never like had even any idea until my youth pastor told me to change my shirt because it would make men do bad things and that I was bringing shame upon my body. A week later, I had a, a stranger grab my breast on the street. And I thought it was my fault. And I didn't tell anyone because I had just become a licked sucker or a bald flower in that one second without my consent at the age of 13 after I had finished petting a stray dog. And I didn't tell anyone about that for 10 years because I carried so much shame thinking it was my fault because my body, as I was taught, makes men do bad things. And that is literally what I was taught. It's not surprising that I was taught this because we tell little girls and women that their bodies are stumbling blocks and they will make men think bad thoughts. And the best way we can protect men from themselves or protect ourselves from them is to cover anything that shows that we're a woman. If only this worked, If only I wasn't wearing baggy clothes the first time I wasn't sexually assaulted. If only women weren't raped in burkas. If only w- what we are wearing had absolutely nothing to do with men objectifying us and using us and treating us as objects. No, my friends, the problem is not what women wear. It is not what you think of women. It is, it is not their fault. The problem is men who think they're entitled to women's bodies. And if we look at what we were taught, what I was taught, even as I was being groomed to be a good wife, I was told that I needed to be available for my husband at all times for his sexual needs. And it's so hard for men to control themselves because they're visual creatures, unlike women. And all of these, if it's on, like if it's not on the market, don't show it as if our bodies were to be like an object that's bought and sold. Like my goodness, my body is not an object. And so not only am I receiving teachings that my body is a stumbling block and less than and shameful, men and young boys are receiving- The same. <laughs> teachings. Yeah, that I'm not responsible for my actions. She was showing it, it was on the market. It's not my fault. She didn't, you know, like even going to the pool, women had, girls had to wear like full clothes and guys were like shirtless. Like, but but if he stumbled, oh, it's because so-and-so wasn't wearing full clothing at the swimming pool. And like, no, that's not the problem. The problem is you've been conditioned to think women's bodies are, you're entitled to them and that you're entitled to think whatever you want with them because it's not your responsibility. And I saw this, I had this moment where I was in Malaysia at the time, and we were working with uh, kids who had grown up in a very conservative um, Islamic area. So a lot of the, all the women here like wore hijabs, and a young boy told our contact that he was raised to believe that if a woman was showing skin, she shouldn't be. He was entitled to rape her. Like this was an entitlement, and while. Our teaching here isn't as extreme it kind of is saying the same thing if it's showing it and making you lust you might not be responsible for your actions boys will be boys and we even look at the way this even bleeds into our society like let's look at the brock turner chanel miller case brock turner raped a woman she was drunk and he uh, and incapacitated and he brought her outside and raped her and there was witnesses and he you know she went through court the whole time her character was degraded they went through her sexual history to like as if because she had ever had in, like any kind of sexual experience with her boyfriend that suddenly meant that she wanted that of course not or they used the excuse well since she was drunk she was asking for it yet on brock turner's defense His defense was like, he wasn't responsible because he was drunk. Like, are you kidding me? You're using one thing for the defense of a man's actions and it's her fault, like if they were both drinking? Like, no, like this is is ridiculous. And so we focus so much on the woman's past to justify what happened to her. And we say, well, don't let anything happen to him because this will affect his future. His hypothetical future is not gonna be met because I mean, he didn't, like, I mean, this, boys will be boys. Like, they just do these things. And so again, we can even see this kind of conditioning that men can't control. Oh, poor guy, he just couldn't help himself, you know? And it's not, it's, 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 it's bullshit, quite frankly. And on top of that, I mean, there was witnesses to what happened. You can't have a clearer rape, like, prosecution. Like, there are witnesses that pulled him off of her and still, he only got six months in prison. That was lessened to three months in prison on good behavior. And so, if we look at our society as a whole, according to Rain, which is a uh, place that studies domestic violence in women, only five in one thousand—I'll say this again—five in one thousand rapists face jail time. Okay, if that is not an indication of who we value in society. Like, I don't know what is. And so the way that rape culture and purity culture, like how could it be more clear that we're telling boys that they're not responsible for their actions? We wanna protect them. I remember the Christian response to the Me Too movement was like, I'm worried for my son. I'm like, you've completely missed the point. Your son shouldn't be worried if he's not a rapist. And then people say, oh, well, what if women are lying? So, okay, we can talk about that too. So there's studies. That only nine, that 95% to 99% of women are telling the truth, and it's probably higher than that. Again, because we have so many women that don't come forward because of how society doesn't believe them. So, based on these statistics, women are telling the truth, women are not believed, and we're still trying to protect men when men are doing the harming. And I want to also point out this whole idea of like power differentials and power dynamics. So there's so much research coming out recently that sexual assault is not due to lust or sexual feelings. That's not true at all. It's actually due to power dynamics. And so, um, for example, like if we think about women, I mean, we're all women here. Have you ever wanted to have sex? Like tell me,
0: yes. I hope yes. so. That's all a normal
2: human thing. Did you go out and rape someone? No. And I'm not saying <laughs> <laughs> no, of course not. But yet one in three women are sexually assaulted, men acting out on their urges. We all have urges. One of us, one gender has been conditioned to believe that they are not responsible for their urges. And so we're seeing this, and it's a lot about power differentials. We're, we're told, oh, if women are some more submissive, this is what we hear in the church. If women are more submissive, then men can be more protective whatever, and then less women will be hurt, but they don't understand that it's actually power differentials. The fact that he has so much power over her that women are getting assaulted and raped in the first place. And so if we even think about, when we hear stories about rape, Ravi Zacharias, the power differentials between him and the women he was abusing are enormous. This is not about sexual feelings. This is because he knew he could get away with it and express his power in that way. I mean, you can think of, of, like, oftentimes when we hear of stories, it's a pastor and a student, or it's a professor and a student, or it's a boss and an employee. We often see that this is due to power differentials, and this is not actually about sexual urges, because women, believe it or not, are sexual creatures as well, but are not acting out because we haven't been raised to believe we're entitled to other people's bodies. And so even in this most recent case with um, the the man shooting women that he viewed as a temptation, we have to remember he is part of us. He is part of the white evangelical church. He was like everyone who described him said he's religious, he's devout, he's such a good boy. How could he do this? Well, it's because you raised him to believe that women were responsible for his own problems. And so instead of taking responsibility or acknowledging this is, has to do with how we've been raised and conditioned to view women's bodies or women in general and objectify them, he thought he should eliminate the temptation. So of course there's a tie. If you're being raised to believe that women are temptations and stumbling blocks, and if you're trying to, I guess, get better of your, your quote unquote sexual addiction, you you think women are the problem and not yourself. So yeah, purity culture is absolutely contributing to rape culture, 110%. You could not convince me otherwise.
0: Yeah, you know, we agree. <laughs> yes, 100%. It's, yeah, there's, there's so many different toxic mindsets from the gamut of, of sexual assault and rape culture to mm-hmm. just like female insecurity and like mm-hmm. um, self-doubt that come mm-hmm. from purity culture and from the idea that your body is toxic or bad or an, an object for lust or all of those different things like it does so much to the female and to the male psyche and it hurts everybody on all sides Yep. <laughs> um, because there, there's no good that comes from it mm-hmm. so Megan we've covered so many different things <laughs> um, and I uh, I feel like I could just like sit and soak and absorb all of the things that you've said um, for hours after this and um, probably will. And we'll probably just go and listen to your podcast more and absorb more. Um, but, or read uh, your book. Yes. yes. <laughs> um, but our last question that we want to ask you that we ask all of our guests um, is uh, just what does the the idea or the word pairing or the the concept of woman being mean to you when you hear that phrase
2: (laughs) yeah well i mean i don't know what you guys intended when you named your podcast this but when i hear the term woman being it's humanizing me like um we hear the phrase human being but so often like i just talked about for the last goodness knows how long uh women aren't seen as full people and so that I'm a human being, that I should be seen as a human being, not a stumbling block, not an object, not a you know descendant of Eve that makes men stumble or that I'm easily deceived. Woman being means I'm allowed to be the Mago Dei of God like I've been made to be. I've been made in the image of God just as men have, just as everyone has. Everyone on this planet is made in the image of God. So that's what it means is, like, see me as an image bearer of God and not a stumbling block or less capable or whatever you want to do that makes me less than human. So that's what it means to me. That's
0: good. That. Yeah, I love that, too. So, Megan, um, lastly, I know you've brought up a bunch of different books and in different resources throughout this. Um Could you just give us any plugs, how people could find you and then any resources that you would recommend as our listeners are definitely going to want to hear more about Mm -hmm. what you've talked about. Um, Obviously, they can listen to you on the Faith and Feminism podcast. Uh, But yeah, could you give us some of those?
2: As of this recording and definitely as of this release, my book is not out yet, Um, but it would mean the world to me if you pre-order. Um, I have heard my publishers talk to me so many times about how important pre-orders are, so I would love if you pre-ordered my book. If you liked what I have to say, I say it in so much more detail and a lot better in my book because I got to sit down and write it instead of my little rant. Um, But it also has um, all of those resources that I mentioned are mentioned in my book in much greater detail and more resources, so I source um, where these concepts come from but if you want to follow me, um, it's Megan Chance on Instagram, on Facebook. I don't I'm not usually on Face. Don't go there. Um, Twitter, um, and my website is meganchance.com. And any one of those places, you can find out how to pre-order the book. And like I said, it would mean the world to me if you did. Uh, pre-order, share with your friends. Um, also, at the time of this recording, I should have a launch team that you could be, if you're interested in getting the word out, you can win fun things like sugar, spice, and basic human rights candles. Um, I also made a cookbook called Recipes to Take Down the Patriarchy, so you could win that as well. So um, definitely looking <laughs> for help to get this the word out um, about this book. Um, some of the resources I mentioned from my memory, like I said, I talked a lot. Um, Half the Sky by Nicholas Kristoff and Cheryl Wu Dun, uh, husband and wife team, wrote that book. Um, the, another book I mentioned was The Body Keeps Score. And that's by, oh my goodness, I forgot his name, but you can find it if you search by title. Yeah, and we'll link them uh, all. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, some other resources. Uh, I briefly mentioned James Baldwin. He, he has a, um, a book called The Fire Next Time. He's a civil rights activist. Really, really incredible. Um, I, I don't know what else I mentioned. <laughs> Those are some things off the top of my head. Um, also, if you wanna read a book or read an article about um, how sexual assault is about power, there's a really incredible article on Psychology Today. I think it's literally called Sexual Assault is About Power and it's um, by My goodness, I reference this article all the time because it's so good, and I can't remember her name right now. But if you Google that with Psychology Today, um, you could be able to find her, that article. It's really good. Um, So those are the things I can remember off the top of my head. I apologize if I forgot something. Oh, no No, worries. We
0: will also sift through and get all the resources into our description for anyone who wants them. But those are great starting points for sure. Um, and also I want to reiterate your book that's coming out is called Woman Rising. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and I believe it's on May 11th that yes. it's supposed to be released.
3: Amazing. Uh, so
0: yeah, you guys can pre-order that. Um, we know we're pr- like probably going to be reading it and talking about it on the podcast. We will
1: definitely do a Not Your Mom's <laughs> Book Club about yes. Woman <laughs> Rising when it comes out. So yeah.
0: get ready for that. Um, <laughs> so you guys can go ahead and get a head start on that. Um. And uh, yeah, Megan, we are so, so appreciative that you came on with us today. Yes. Um, So appreciative of uh, you choosing to reach out to our little podcast and um, spend this time out of your day. Uh, We sincerely hope that you guys, the woman beings, have enjoyed this conversation with Megan and um, have gained as much from it as we have. Um, also a reminder for you guys that you can follow us at Being Podcast on Instagram uh, and you can also go to our website womanbeingcommunity.com to check us out and be sure to follow the podcast on iTunes, Spotify all the other major podcasting platforms we're there and also give us a review and then hop on over to the Faith and Feminism podcast to give it a follow too so <laughs> um, Thank you again, Megan. You're amazing. That's the end of today's podcast. (laughs) We'll catch you guys next week. And yeah. Thanks for being here. Thanks for being here. The end.